This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Deport, Deprive, Extradite, 21st Century State Extremism by Nisha Kapoor. The extradition of terror suspects reveals the worst features of the security state. In 2012, five Muslim men were extradited from Britain to the U.S. to face terrorism-related charges. Fahad Hashmi was deported a few years before. Abid Nasir and Harun Aswat would follow shortly. They were subject to pre-trial incarceration for up to 17 years, police brutality, secret trials, secret evidence, long-term detention and solitary confinement, citizenship deprivation, and more. Deport, Deprive, Extradite draws on their stories as starting points to explore what they illuminate about the disciplinary features of state power and its securitizing conditions. In looking at these stories of Muslim men accused of terrorism-related offenses, Nisha Kapoor explores how these racialized subjects are dehumanized, made non-human both in terms of how they are represented and via the disciplinary techniques used to expel them. She explores how these cases illuminate and enable intensifying authoritarianism and the diminishment of democratic systems. Deport, Deprive, Extradite. 21st Century State Extremism by Nisha Kapoor. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is yet the latest installment in our ongoing series on the left and electoral politics. My guest today is Shokwe Antar Lumumba, the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. Last year, Mayor Lumumba pledged to make Jackson the most radical city on the planet. Lumumba, who comes from a decades-old revolutionary black nationalist movement, is serious about that. But he also faces serious challenges. Jackson is a majority black city which, like many such cities, has much of its wealth appropriated by its largely white suburbs. The human and infrastructural needs are enormous, and the tax base is thin. This is precisely why so many on the left have found what's going on in Jackson to be so interesting, and why I was eager to invite the mayor onto the show. The left-wing resurgence across the United States is a direct challenge to a Democratic Party long enthralled to neoliberalism, which as a result made economic crisis a pretext for the limitation of our political horizons to the management of immiseration in the form of withered social services and to the subjugation of local government to the interests of development capital by way of tax break-backed courtship of major corporations like Amazon. Lumumba and the movement that he serves endeavor to accomplish something quite different and rather radical, by reorganizing not only the city, but the entire region's labor power to serve local human needs instead of profit. One quick note, in recent months there has been a split of sorts underway between black radicals around the organization Cooperation Jackson and the mayor's circle. We don't really get into that much during the interview because 
in all honesty, I was entirely unaware of it before the interview, and I still don't really understand it that well at all. Much of the debate, however, seems to be over what role electoral politics should play on the left. And so I'd love to do a show on this debate sometime in the future. It would also be great if someone could write up an article explaining this conflict so that I and others can become more aware of what's going on. Right now, there are some posts online written by people involved in the debate and a link to them in the newsletter. Speaking of which, this is our spring fundraising drive. And we need your support at patreon.com slash the dig to ensure the long-term financial viability of this podcast. Mostly, this is just a nice thing you can do. We put tons of work into this show and give it all away for free. But we do have some thank you gifts as well. A contribution of $5 a month gets you access to my new weekly newsletter, which has tips from my guests and from me on where to read deeper on the ideas that we discuss on the show. $10 gets you a copy mailed to your door of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. $20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of books authored by Dig Guests and from publishers like Verso. Oh, and if you tried to donate $20 or $25 a month recently and it said that those amounts were capped, try again. I have raised those caps. Anyhow, if you haven't already, please make a contribution now at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Okay, here's Shokwe Antar Lumumba. Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba, welcome to The Dig. Thank you. Uh, Happy to be on your program. We've got a lot to talk about, so I want to start by just asking you a big-picture question about a really big-picture statement that you made. Last year at the People's Summit, you pledged to make Jackson the most radical city on the planet. Tell me what you mean. It's a, a statement and a declaration that, that initially uh, rises out of a critique of myself uh, and, and my father and, and the uh, Malcolm X grassroots movement, an organization which I'm a part of. Uh, over the years, uh, we've been a part of a lot of community activism, uh, activist work. Uh, and there was the accusation that maybe our politics, our brand of politics was just too radical to bring people together. And so it, it gave me pause. It gave me, you know, a moment to reflect on, on what, what necessarily or, or what exactly is a radical. And as I looked it up, you know, it was clear to me that a radical is a person who seeks change. And, you know, we've used this term as uh, a negative label over time. And the reality is if we see a community, if we see cities that are in need of change, then we need to be as radical as the circumstances dictate we should be. When we look across history and see those individuals that have provided the most uh, impactful uh, contributions to our world, those individuals were radical. I often speak about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and and Fannie Lou Hamer here in Mississippi and Megger Evers. Uh, and, and, you know, I identify that they were radicals. Jesus Christ was a radical. Uh, and so I don't know if I'm, you know, necessarily deserving of the term myself, 
but I certainly strive to be a radical because I'm striving for change in our community. Uh, and, and radical does not equate to reckless. I believe that we can, you know, make uh, principled uh, decisions that, that help and incorporate people's ability or allow people to, a greater ability to have more impact in their governance without being reckless. And so uh, radical does not mean reckless, but we certainly want to change the way we see electoral politics today. And after all, the, the, the status quo, which is not deemed radical, has led to some pretty radically awful consequences for people all across this country and world. Absolutely. I, I think, you know, when I say we want to change the way we see electoral politics, I, I think historically the way we see that take place is we wait for an individual to assert, uh, you know, their their ability to change things for everybody. And so we usually adopt their idea or their concept of, of progress for us. And I think we need to abandon that and, and move to a model where we give people more control, like like in Jackson, Mississippi, we're developing or we, we're utilizing, we're more than developing, we've been doing it for the last several years, uh, but we're utilizing our people's assemblies uh, as means for an information exchange where the government at this time, because it's a government in support of the people's assembly, can provide information to the citizens about uh, happenings in, in, in uh, the city from the governmental uh, side of things. And the constituents, the citizens, can provide information back to the government, what they're seeing on the ground, what they're experiencing on a grassroots level, what they demand of their government. Uh, so it's, it's more than an information exchange. It's a pressure, uh, it, it's a pressure initiative uh, that continues to pressure government to do exactly what people have elected it to do. And before we get any further along, I want to ask you to define some terms with regard to the organizations you're connected to and that are playing lead roles in what's going on in Jackson. There's the New African People's Organization, the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, which you mentioned. There's Cooperation Jackson. Can, can you explain what each of those groups is and how they relate to, to one another and to the process that's currently underway in the city? Well, the, the New African People's Organization uh, is, is an organization which uh, my father, uh, actually was a member of and, and uh, one of the co-founders. The New African People's Organization is the uh, parent organization of the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement, which is a mass organization uh, which promotes uh, the concept of self-determination uh, uh, for, for communities um, across the country and, and, you know, across the world for that matter. Uh, and uh, Cooperation Jackson is an organization which I am not a part of. Uh, it, it initially uh, gave rise or, or was developed under uh, the Malcolm X grassroots movement. And uh, we, we believe that there is good work that, that needs to be heard from Cooperation Jackson. Uh, but the Malcolm X grassroots movement and Cooperation Jackson are no longer working uh, in conjunction with one another. Huh. Is, is, is that for, um, not to get too much into the weeds, but just so I... I'm, I'm clear on it. Is that is that because of of political differences or for strategic reasons? I would say that that both have been considered both strategic and political um, uh, paths that are taken. Uh, they, they're not working in opposition to one another, uh, but they are no longer associated with one another. 
And so I, I just can't speak for Cooperation Jackson. They would, their, their leadership would have to speak for them. Uh, and, and the Malcolm X grassroots movement and Cooperation Jackson still has uh, a common end and a, and a common objective uh, and, and will continue to work towards those ends and objectives. And does that end, does that shared end include the the Jackson-Cush plan? Yeah, well, the Jackson-Cush plan is is a plan that that my father uh, and and the Malcolm X grassroots movement has been speaking of for for years. Uh, Before the the development of Cooperation Jackson, uh, we we talked about uh, the the shared circumstance and shared demographic uh, of the area that that was commonly referred to as Cush, and we we look at it as the Cush District here in Mississippi. And the opportunities that can can uh, can uh, arise out of a economic strategy which works uh, collectively, which which pulls resources together. Uh, when you look historically, and and you you question or you look at the question of how do poor people uh, look to overcome their conditions, it's not an original question. It's a question which people like Fannie Lou Hamer addressed when she created. Uh, Work uh, farmer cooperatives and, and work towards you know uh, black farmers here in Mississippi working together in order to pull their their tools and their resources together in order to to uh, uh, create a better economic condition for their communities and so we're borrowing from that history we're borrowing from that and, and pushing it forward and looking for new opportunities looking at how we can create businesses which are worker owned cooperatives which uh, can fill gaps and voids within communities like Jackson Mississippi. Uh, Jackson is a city which does not have a problem producing wealth. It's a city that has a problem maintaining wealth. And so all of the money that is made between nine and five just happens to be out by six. And so we have to find out how we reverse that trend and how we have businesses which are profitable, but businesses that are that are not only profitable, but are invested, invested in the community. And so by having uh, businesses by, by their very nature, uh, and, 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 and the reason for their inception is to service the community. And, and, you know, it only would leave or vacate the community if the community deemed it necessary for its own success uh, is, an, is an interesting perspective and a, and a new idea or a new way of looking at it, you know, in recent times in Mississippi. Uh, the state of Mississippi, because of the work of Fannie Lou Hamer and, and, and uh, individuals like her, uh, actually you know, made it illegal to incorporate cooperative businesses in Mississippi. So it's very clear uh, how how that kind of uh, oppressive idea has has been circulated in Mississippi to try to prevent people from rising up from from up under the uh, economic oppression that they suffer. Wow, that and it's also a powerful signal of the clear threat that cooperatives pose to the powers that be in the state. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, essentially, you know, we know the, the um, normal slogans that are issued against, you know, the, the efforts to work collectively. You know, uh, people are accused of, of this, you know, supposedly horrible socialist ideas and, and communism and, and all of these things. When the reality is, whether you subscribe to those notions or not, uh, that's, that's the direction that most of the world is turning to. Uh, you look at companies like Lando Lakes Butter. You look at uh, Florida Orange Growers. You look at uh, if anyone is a part of a, a credit union, that those are nothing more than cooperatives. Uh, Ace Hardware is, is a, a cooperative. Uh, the largest cooperative business we know today in the country uh, would be uh, 
the city of Green Bay, the city of Green Bay, which which, you know, has found a way to own its own professional football team. Uh, that's that's a cooperative business. When we look at uh, the city of Jackson, uh, which is a city of above one hundred and seventy two thousand people, yet there is no movie theater in the city of Jackson. That's that's shameful. Uh, we're, we see a city that has food deserts. Uh, it's, it's laced with food deserts. And so we can find a way, if the city of Green Bay, which is smaller, actually, uh, in size, can figure out how to own its own uh, professional football team, then my statement is, is that we could use our bully pulpit in the mayor's office. We could work in our people's assemblies. We could collectively own our own movie theater. Yeah, I, I found that uh, example of a movie theater, which you've spoken about before, particularly poignant. It's a small scale thing, but a, but a powerful statement to give people basic access to to entertainment and education of film and for the city and collect cooperatives to step in when when capital has refused to. Absolutely. Most people, the reality is most people uh, don't see the value in your investment or an investment in you until you invest in yourself, until you build it yourself. Once you build it yourself, then then uh, people see uh, see the value there. And, and you know, when we see a city which uh, all of the bedroom communities are able to build uh, around the city and, and have their movie theaters and have all these things that they depend on the city of Jackson. And we don't want to see them, those communities fail. However, we want to see, you know, an area where we all thrive. And so when, when businesses and, and banks are redlining, you know, and we're going to be honest about that. They're redlining in Jackson. Uh, they're, they're telling people that they can't get money for their investment in Jackson and, and instructing them to look elsewhere, instructing them to look outside of the city. Once we demonstrate that we have the capacity to fill our void, then it becomes dangerous not to invest in Jackson. It becomes dangerous when, when they realize, well, Jackson doesn't come out here to our movie theater anymore because they have their own, right? And we know when people watch movies, they tend to uh, enjoy to take, uh, take in a meal before their movie, and they may have a little uh, time on their hands, and they may want to shop. And so all those things become affected. And so people then, you, you leverage your position. You, you create power for yourself so that people don't have the option of, of, of uh, failing to recognize the need to invest in your community. In terms of co-ops, what is your ideal vision of the role they'll, they'll ultimately play in the city, in the region? What sort of co-ops would you like to see up and running? And what's the current status of the process? You haven't been in office that long. We have not been in office that long, but, but you know, I think that you know, there almost are limited possibilities in terms of the cooperative businesses we can see. Uh, we, we certainly need to see more grocery stores in our community. We've mentioned the movie theaters. Uh, we have a huge infrastructure issue in our city. Uh, so, so what we can do is develop our own community-owned uh, construction company, turning our crumbling infrastructure into an economic frontier. Uh, being able to utilize that as an opportunity to not only fix our roads, as we, we have uh, some, some resources that have been uh, committed by the community. Uh, the community voted under my father's administration to tax themselves by 90%. The community voted uh, to, to uh, do a 1% sales tax 
so that that money would go towards infrastructure projects. If our plan to fix our infrastructure does not incorporate how we employ people in the community, uh, how we turn that into jobs, how we turn that into uh, money that recirculates within uh, our community, then we have a failed plan. It, because it those will, contractors you know, will be coming in from the suburbs otherwise. Those those contractors will be coming in from, from the suburbs, from uh, distant, distant lands, uh, you know, in order to take advantage. Uh, and the community will, will be left holding the bag. You know, I, I say that, you know, if Jackson is an 85 percent black city. Uh, the example I give is if 85 percent of your population is left handed, then the reality is, is that you need some left handed jobs. Uh, and so we're looking It's more than just a question of color. It's a, it's a, you know, a question of ideas. And the best idea is that you find a way to to uh, to support the economy of your city with the, the resources that you have and that you're pledging out daily. And so we look forward to doing that. And what's the current status of things? Uh, well, we, we're working with the People's Assemblies uh, to move these ideas forward. Uh, we have a concept uh, for our movie theater at this time. Uh, I don't want to speak too you know, in depth on that because everything has not been secured at this moment. Uh, and, but we are pushing forward with that idea. Uh, we're pushing forward with a number of ideas that will help drive um, the economy for our city um, in terms of the technology that we're using, in terms of uh, what we're providing, uh, in terms of building a workforce that will be able to work in these these uh, businesses that we're uh, installing. We're transforming the school district at this moment. Our school district, when we took over, and, and that's important towards the development of that workforce, the school district, once we took over office, was under threat of state takeover. It was all but the governor's signature away from a state takeover, in fact. And we were able to reach agreement with philanthropic partners uh, that, that came and, and the governor's office that saw to it that the school district uh, maintained in local control uh, and, and brought resources to bear that now we can do a gap analysis of where the school district is uh, versus where the goals and aspirations of every parent and child would have for it to be. Uh, and so we've literally had community assemblies where we've had thousands of people come out and share their goals and aspirations. We have a door knocking campaign where we're going to knock on 60,000 doors in the city, uh, 60,000, which would, would be an opportunity. That's roughly the estimate of how many homes there are in the city of Jackson. Where we can knock on each door uh, to meet people where they are. Uh, you can't anticipate, even though you may have some of the most well-meaning uh, organizational structures where you want people to come to the community centers or the churches or, or what have you, uh, the reality is simply every person isn't going to come. And so we're going to go to them, and we're going to talk to them about that. Uh, we're we're uh, working with uh, institutions and, and organizations like Kellogg, where we're now having conversations about being able to provide uh, universal uh, pre-K uh, throughout Jackson, that every every child will be will have pre-K available to them, and we're starting P20 counseling. We're not talking about uh, preschool through graduate school with those P20 counselors either. We're talking about prenatal through graduate school, uh, where mothers will have an opportunity to to talk about their vision for their children and talk about the resources they need in order to accomplish that vision. Uh, and so we're going to work collectively on this, and and we're we're grateful. That, that people around the country are seeing uh, the unique nature of, of what we're attempting to do. And we believe that that's important not only to Jackson, that's important to the country. 
uh, that's important to the world because if we can achieve progress, if we can demonstrate this radical vision in Jackson, Mississippi, which has been known for such such horrible suffering over time, uh, then it demonstrates that it can happen anywhere. You've looked to, to Barcelona and to the Mondragon cooperatives in the Basque country for, for inspiration in terms of how cooperatively based development in the city might work. What, what have you found there? Well, I was, I was very, uh, you know, pleased to, to, to have that opportunity. And I learned uh, quite a bit. Uh, I saw how they were utilizing cooperative businesses in terms of, you know, uh, large scale residential development, uh, how they were using cooperative businesses for grocery stores, how they were using cooperative businesses for uh, libraries and, and bars. Uh, you know, I joke that there were lots of bars. They enjoyed their bars. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but it was, you know, it was filling the needs of the community. Uh, there were art cooperatives that were helping uh, create not only, you know, things that were aesthetically pleasing, pleasing, but culture, helping, you know, to support the culture of their community. And I think that those are all things that we can take from. Uh, we also had the opportunity to look at uh some of the fabrication labs that were there. And as we deal with uh, this, you know, this, this uh, surgence uh, of, of uh, technological advance in our world, it's not coming on us. It, it is here. We have to make certain that we command the technology because you have the traditional debates of, of uh, innovation versus workforce. And when we look across uh, time, we see that, that when we had uh, technological advance in, in the auto industry, for for instance. Companies were able to put uh, profits over people. And instead of uh, listening to the unions, which were saying, look, instead of laying people off, give them shorter work weeks uh, or shorter work, uh, yeah, sh- shorter work weeks and, and allow them to make the same money and spend more time with their family. And those, those auto uh, companies thought it was a ridiculous notion and they laid people off. Well, it, it wound up not only hurting those families, it hurt the auto industry themselves because they failed to realize that robots don't buy cars. And so as we see that, that this technology now gives the opportunity uh, for uh, manufacturing to be uh, available in a much more grassroots uh, fashion, then we need to teach our children how to use that technology. We need to have fabrication technology and 3D printers uh, in our schools so that they can learn how to create for themselves. They can exchange ideas. They can use uh, their, their, uh, their genius uh, to, to pass those ideas on to other areas. And so we look forward to exposing them to those opportunities uh, and, and building our community based on that, utilizing that within areas that have never had access to those tools and resources and never had access uh, to an ability to create uh, for the needs that they have right there in the community. Um, when we see uh, schools that literally suffer from uh, a lack of funding, that they don't have an uh, adequate number of desks. Well, you know, I can imagine a time where we can send a child over to a 3D printer literally to create his own desk and sit down and learn more. Wow, it's it's really interesting, the connection you made to the auto industry, because, of course, uh, in the mid-20th century, black workers were the canaries in the coal mine when it came to automation in the industry and black radical thinkers and activists were, were very attuned to that that question. And now you're talking about today this question of there's no there's not the future's not technologically determined. We're undergoing another 
you know, uh, continuous technological revolutions. But the question you're wrestling with is who will control the, the, the fruits of of this technological revolution? Will it just go to corporate profit, which means that more labor becomes disposable and surplus? Or will it allow people to build new sorts of lives? Absolutely. And I think that's a question we, we necessarily have to ask. Uh, we can't get caught up in, in the nice new trinket, the nice new uh, toy, uh, and, and not consider how it impacts uh, people's people's lives. Uh, you know, there was a time where we had, you know, people waiting on jobs. Now we'll have jobs uh, waiting on people. Uh, but we need to make certain that people aren't displaced uh, who have been working other jobs for years. We have to make certain that we, we consider them in the process because, uh, the communities will not be without impact if we don't if we don't make a, a strategic choice in how we do it, deal with that. Before we move on, one other term I wanted you to define: what is the the Kush region? It, I believe it's a a string of about eighteen counties that, except for one, are majority black alongside the Mississippi River. Yes, if you if you look on the western portion of the state of Mississippi, uh, the majority of those counties. Uh, as you as you mentioned, all of those counties, with the exception of one, Warren County, is majority black. Uh, and so, uh, when we talk about how we build wealth for you know areas that have you know long been out been without uh, economic strength and, and support, uh, you know what we are able to accomplish in Mississippi is unique to any other place in this country. The population by demographic, uh, uh, the population and by percentage, uh, Mississippi has the highest black percentage in the nation. Uh, and so we feel it is important that what we do here in Jackson, Mississippi, which is 85 percent black, can be replicated throughout the state of Mississippi and demonstrate for people of color across uh, across the spectrum, across the, the nation uh, of what can be achieved when when we have principled leadership and and uh, collective genius at the table, and cooperative economics. I want to talk about how you ended up as as mayor. Your, your father, who was then a city councilman, ran and won the race for mayor in 2013, and then died a little over a half year later. Obviously, this must have been an immense tragedy on a personal level for you, it was also, I assume, quite a crisis for the movement, which had so recently taken this enormous step of putting a radical in the mayor's office. How did your, your father's passing away impact you as a son, and, and how did it affect the movement? Quite naturally. Uh, you know, my father uh, was, was, you know, quite a, quite a big figure uh, for me. Uh, you know, I had the unique benefit to to work with or to live with uh, my hero um, and and he taught me so much uh, my father you know not only uh, was dedicated himself to a movement the decision to move to Jackson Mississippi was not based on having family here we had no family here uh, he moved here because he he had the opportunity to do work in the 70s in, in Jackson Mississippi and felt it was important to return so he committed his family to it both he and my mother uh, made the strategic decision that that you know uh, they could not shield their children from a movement 
that it was important that they give it to us, uh, just like giving food, water, and shelter. And so uh, they had us in community centers. We were at the Malcolm X Community Center uh, growing up where we had uh, day camp programs uh, where we we had, uh, you know, uh, we had political education, where we had martial arts training. Uh, we had all of these things that, that the community valued. And so they taught me in that. Uh, over time, we realized that, that having a community center had a limited footprint. It had a, a limited ability to affect what we wanted to change in our community. And so we uh, considered the idea of going into electoral politics. Uh, a number of people uh, entertained that idea with my father, and, and he made the choice to do so. At that time, the initial vision was for him to run for mayor and for me to run for city council, and I was against that idea. Uh, that's not where I found myself at that moment. And my father, uh, you know, I discussed with him that I didn't think he was viable to run for mayor at that moment, <laughs> that, that people didn't see him in that way, and so that he needed a, you know, he, he might want to start at city council. And, and he did and, and had great success there, but realized the limitations in that role. And so he, he uh, later ran for mayor and, and, you know, I supported him in that. I was his, his uh, I was his media chair. Uh, and then, and then I was uh, later uh, one of the campaign, I was on the campaign coordinating committee for his run for mayor. And, you know, he talked to me about how he saw me potentially uh, getting into electoral politics. I told him at that moment that I, I wasn't interested. I had, had, you know, was just trying to close the deal on, on my, on my, my then girlfriend, now my wife. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, I uh, was just getting into my work as an attorney and, and how that could impact the community. Uh, but on February 25th of 2014, uh, I realized, uh, that was the day my dad died. I realized that, that, uh, leadership must come less out of political ambition and more out of necessity. And I decided that it was, you know, important that I run uh, in order to, to uh, continue those ideas and pushing uh, for, for a radical uh, thinking in our, in our city at that time. And you I lost, lost the first uh, race. I lost the first race. And, and I'm actually in hindsight grateful that I lost. I was able to appreciate far more going on with the city I was able to appreciate far more going on with myself, having just lost my father. Uh, my wife and I had just had our first child. Uh, so getting the opportunity on the personal level to enjoy those things and learn more about myself was important. And I think it built us for this moment. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, I, I will say, you know, as we talk about our legacy and, and the history and what my parents taught me, I'm, I'm literally sitting outside of uh, the West Side Community Center here in Jackson, Mississippi, where this is one of our early childhood development centers. And they're about to cut the ribbon uh, for uh, a, a infant uh, center that they have named in honor of my mother, uh, the director. I, I was unaware that they were naming it after my mother. They, they're naming it Nubia's Landing. But, you know, it just demonstrates uh, the love and appreciation and the impact uh, that I was blessed to have from my parents and this community was blessed to have. And, and we've learned so much and taken so much from the community ourselves. Uh, it hasn't been a, you know, uh, some noble effort that, that we provided. It's been a, an exchange. And so we love this city. We love this community. We learn from each other and we build with each other. Hi, this is Aziz Rana and you're listening to The Dig. As you know, The Dig is an essential podcast doing critical work and shaping the meaning of what 
the left can be today. It's my favorite podcast, and you should support it by donating at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Hara Hotel, A Tale of Syrian Refugees in Greece, by Teresa Thornhill. This is a first-hand account of a Greek refugee camp and the stories of the refugees staying there. Syrian Kurd Juwan Azad left his home and family in Damascus in 2011 to flee military service under the al-Assad regime. After several troubled years as a refugee in Turkey, he arrived in Greece by sea, on the route taken by hundreds of thousands of his fellow Syrians seeking a safe haven in Europe. But as borders closed across the Balkans in early 2016, Juwan and his fellow Syrians found themselves blocked from traveling any further. Teresa Thornhill volunteered at Hara Hotel, a makeshift camp on the Greece-Macedonia border. An Arabic speaker, she met Syrians from all walks of life as she distributed clothing and organized activities for children. One of the Syrians was Juwan, who would later walk through the mountains of Macedonia to safety in Austria. In Hara Hotel, Thornhill interweaves a narrative of daily life at the camp with Juwan's extraordinary story, the recent history of the revolution in Syria, and an account of the ensuing civil war, painting a vivid picture of the predicament of Syrians trapped on Europe's borders. Hara Hotel, A Tale of Syrian Refugees in Greece, by Teresa Thornhill. Out now from Verso Books. I wanted to ask you a little more about the the longer history of the movement that you come out of and that your father was a leader of, just because I think it's important context for, for listeners. It was in 1971, mm-hmm. 1971, I believe, that your father and other members of the Republic of New Africa traveled from Michigan, Detroit in particular, I believe, to Balton, Mississippi, which is near Jackson, as part of this project to build a new black nation, a provisional government of New Africa in the five black belt states of the Deep South. Can you tell me a little bit about what that movement was was aiming for at the time and why it chose Mississippi and, and what happened after they arrived? You know, just to give a, a little more uh, clarity to the history, they, they didn't just travel from Detroit. There were people who traveled from, from all around and some people who were from Mississippi. Uh, that were a part of that movement as well. And they didn't just, you know, travel and then try to have the land celebration. They were working in the community uh, for years uh, before they were able to acquire uh, land uh, for this this land celebration. Because, you know, the idea is that land is uh, the the foundation of economic wealth and development and the ability to create culture uh, on land. You know, uh, it's the most important resource. As we look at all those resources that come about, it's the only one that they're they're not making any more of, right? Uh, and so um, that was a movement about self determination. It was a mute movement where, at that time, uh, in the you know in in the city of Jackson and in the state of Mississippi, uh, you know, people were under you know. Uh, different form and, and a different type of oppression than, than what we see uh, now, or, or it manifested in a different way. Uh, and so 
at that moment you had had a very racist police department uh you had um the sovereignty commission uh, that was working against uh, progressive movements uh, that that if you look at the Sovereignty Commission documents today, uh, you see how they made concerted efforts to bring down organizations uh, like the Republic of New Africa, uh, where they tried to uh, create, um, you know, uh, strategies um, around infiltrating those organizations. And so uh, what took place in 1970, and, and at that time, in the 70s, uh, was that there was land that the Republic of New Africa was able to purchase, and, and you know they were looking forward to building structures, building schools, building uh, residences on you know uh, residents on this land, uh, so that people could you know uh, start controlling that space for themselves, and uh, the state government. And, you know, the local government learned of their plans and they, uh, you know, uh, sent word forward that they were not going to allow this. Uh, they, they first tried to stop the acquisition of the land. And then once the land had already been purchased, they tried to stop the celebration. So they literally formed a barrier, uh, a police blockade, uh, stopping the caravan to the land. Uh, my father, uh, who was the head of security at that time for the RNA, uh, got out of the vehicle once they reached the blockade. And you had uh, county police, you had uh, city police, you had uh, state police that were all there uh, with guns drawn uh, and, and, you know, trying to prevent them from going. And so my father got out of the car uh, at that moment and, and, you know, told them, you know, they said there were going to be uh, there would be no land celebration on uh, on that day. And my father said, well, if there's going to be a problem, it's going to be a problem on both ends. Uh, we're not we're not turning around. Uh, and at that point, uh, you know, he described a scene to me where it was like the Red Sea opening up. It was almost biblical uh, where they, they moved aside and, and the caravan was able to uh, proceed. And they got to the land and, and you, you had people who had suffered much, people who had seen so much uh, horrible, uh, you know, things take place that when they got to that land, uh, they were so, so excited and so elated that they literally start eating the dirt, right? People start picking up the dirt and, and, and putting it in their mouths. And so that's where the slogan that my father uh, chanted to the day he died came from where people start saying we free we're freeing the land we free the land um, and so that slogan is in a larger context for how we uh, free up uh, area free up space for people to be able to control their destinies and control their lives and so uh, the strategies and the techniques and the ideas and, and what may be necessary today may differ from what was necessary back then uh, but the mission of still uh, providing opportunity for everybody, the mission of still uh, seeing uh, a space where where we consider uh, the conditions and the needs and the concerns of everybody still uh, exists today. And so uh, at that, there was a moment uh, where, you know, the movement may have been a bit antagonistic towards electoral politics. Today, uh, we still see electoral politics, or, or we now see electoral t 
electoral politics as a means to an end. It is not the end, but it is a means to an end. We still require, we still need uh, organizations and movements to push the envelope of, of what we need to see out of our world and our society. Uh, but we can also, where the opportunity presents itself, uh, use uh, the, the, the electoral politics structure as a support of that, that work. How do you balance your big picture, long-range plans to transition away from capitalism to a more eco-socialist system with these more small-bore, everyday tasks of being the mayor of an economically marginalized city like Jackson, where whose residents have in large part been declared surplus disposable labor by, by the neoliberal system as it exists. For you know, for example, you've you've inherited a water quality problem that requires enormous expenditures on infrastructure. And then there's the potholes, which everyone seems to talk about in in Jackson, how do you balance that that sort of everyday making the city run with this big picture transformation that you're looking at? Well, well, first and foremost, I have uh, I'm under no misgiving about uh, the contradictions of uh, electoral politics uh, and, and, you know, uh, the revolution that has to take place. I don't believe that that everything that we're striving to do will be achievable through electoral politics, and that's why it requires a comprehensive uh, effort, uh, an effort that looks at the problem from from multiple angles. Uh, and that's why I say that that electoral politics is a means to an end. It is not the end. Uh, but in terms of how I, I look at, you know, uh, the task and and the concerns of a community, the the, the normal. Uh, issues that that mayors confront. Uh, I believe we have to meet people where they are. And so when we see people dealing with issues of infrastructure, dealing with the potholes, we have to realize that 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 is a means of broadening the discussion. Uh, You know, my father very eloquently spoke to this issue where he said, listen, we have to literally connect pothole to pothole and the community to community. So uh, people in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, as we repair those potholes, then are able we're able to discuss with them why there is a community that looks just like theirs in Gary, Indiana, in Chicago, Illinois, in New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, in in you know uh, different areas across the nation, and and realization that the reality is is that the issue is that none of you control the conditions which lead to a pothole being replaced in, or repaired in the first place. None of you control your lives. Uh, and until you get more control over that process, until you have more control over how things are budgeted and how wealth is distributed in your community, uh, then you will always be at the mercy of someone else's uh, determination of what value should be placed in your community and what resources should be allocated uh, for those things that you're concerned with. And so uh, that's what we have to do is connect pothole to pothole and take things that, that may seem small in the grand scheme of, of uh, the issues that we face, we issues of, of uh, exploitation, we face issues of uh, discrimination and, and, and the like. And, and, you know, I have a propensity to talk about those very large issues. But when I'm knocking on, you know, a, a lady or a gentleman's door in Jackson, Mississippi, as I'm campaigning, 
you know, I, I'm invariably, you know, confronted with somebody who says, yeah, that's good, young brother, but, but how are you going to fix that pothole in the middle of my street? <laughs> and, so, and so we have to talk about those and we have to, you know, put forth the solutions to those problems uh, and, and use that as a, as a point to engage in larger discussion so that we understand that the pothole was the problem. Your problem was that you didn't control how the pothole gets repaired, but you don't have self-determination. It seems like reading about the situation in Jackson that the lack of that economic self-determination is very much part of this larger economic structure where you have the city that where massive white flight has also meant capital flight and where the Mm -hmm. main businesses are state government and eds and meds. And then uh, Kali Akuno has written about this, how one of the major goals of the Jackson Cush plan is to break the stru- this structural relationship of being uh, both in Mississippi, Jackson, and Mississippi in the South more generally of the way of the way they fit into American and global capitalism more broadly as these long term sites of resource extraction and super exploitation of labor. Um, tell me a little bit about the the economic conditions in the city and how they are structurally related to Mississippi and the South's role within within American and global capitalism? Uh, well, Jackson, like like many cities uh, that are, uh, you know, uh, majority minority cities uh, have seen, you know, has seen a great uh, a, a great deal of divestment over recent years, and, and especially when the leadership uh, start looking, reflecting more the appearance of the majority of the population. Um, and, and so uh, that, is, that has been concerning. Uh, Jackson is a city, as I, I said earlier, I believe, uh, is a city that does not have a problem producing wealth. It is a city that has a problem maintaining wealth, however, because, you know, Jackson, you know, actually uh, is it, it it provides some of the higher wage jobs in the state of Mississippi. It's it's uh, it's, it's uh, a college town. Uh, you have seven institutions here. Uh, one being the University of Mississippi Medical Center, which is the largest employer in the state. Uh, but what you find is that all of the money that is made between nine and five happens to be out by six. And it's taken to those bedroom communities, uh, which are able to build on Jackson's back, uh, able to, to thrive on Jackson's back. And, and, and the idea of economic development to date has not been an idea which invests in, in uh, community. It, it, it sucks resources and, and, and takes advantage of the wealth that the community has, but puts nothing back into the community. And so our efforts are to... to uh, turn away from that model, uh, to, to reject that model, and to create a model which uh, is more consistent with the goals and aspirations of the people uh, in this, this, uh, this community. And so I, I don't believe that developing a matter of latitude and longitude, but a matter of how you develop for the souls that reside in that space. How do you build them up? And so that's what our mission is. And so if your strategy for economic development, if your strategy for anything, is, de- is uh, determined by when someone else decides to act on your behalf, determined by whether those businesses want to come back here. Now, we want to be a business-friendly city. Uh, we want businesses to, to, 
to thrive and succeed. And, uh, you know, but we also want them to invest back in the community. And so we can't wait on them. We have to look at how we, you know, this is going back to our cooperative model. This is going back to how we look at ways of investing in ourselves and, and working with people of goodwill and sincerity uh, that look and find value in Jackson in the process. This goes back to that strategy of, of how we strategically invest in ourselves. Now, after these decades of white and capital flight, I've read that you confront the the flip side of that process, which is gentrification and business-led redevelopment strategies. Mm-hmm. What does that look like in Jackson, and how do you plan to, to deal with it? Well, you know, I, I am against gentrification. I think gentrification is a war on the people. Uh, what you what you do is, you know, you, you move people from one state of misery to the next. Uh, now you have areas or you have people who are uh, devoid of economic resources, uh, and now they've been pushed to the outskirts, and now they're further away from the the uh, the tools. Uh, whether you're talking about public transportation, whether you're talking about you know uh, all of the services that that government provides within the city, they're further away from those resources, and so uh, they're they're pushed to another state of misery. And so um, we're looking at as we deal with issues of blight, as we deal with with how we build communities back and, and support them, we're looking at how we integrate a strategy that does not uh, push people outside, that that does not build areas where people can't afford to live. Uh, we have to abandon the notion, uh, and and this is a much larger task, I admit. And, and you know, I, I don't claim to have the solution to it as we. We uh, sit on this conversation right now, uh, but we abandon the notion that success means that I have to move away from you, that I can't be near you. Uh, one of the things that was lost in the civil rights uh, era was uh, space and, and, and communities where children had the opportunity to see uh, a variety of, uh, of, of fields of, of uh, employment in front of them. You, you live next to the, the doctor and the lawyer live next to the plumber and the electrician. Uh, those people lived in harmony together and, and you know, uh, by force. So as we've abandoned that model, it has broken down community in the sense that, that now the idea of success is that I don't need to live next to you, uh, that, I, that, you know, by living next to you, I'm somehow not uh, successful. And so uh, no one wants to live in conditions where the school system isn't, isn't well. No one wants to live in conditions uh, where the streets are tore up and, and the water isn't, isn't safe and, and clean. Everyone wants the best. And so we have to build that opportunity for everyone. I want to ask you about how you think about what you're doing in relationship to the, to the black political class that predominates in other places throughout the U.S. today, and that has arisen since in the 70s, 80s, and and 90s. Um, There are many black reps in Congress today, but but interestingly, not so much in city halls anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. There are white mayors in Philadelphia and even Detroit today. And Mm -hmm. according to one report that I read, by 2000, 19 of the country's 50 biggest cities had or would soon have black mayors. By 2017, that number had fallen to six. What's mm-hmm. your assessment of, of what's happened, you know, since Gary, basically? So I think that, uh, 
you know, we have to revisit, you know, what model we have to be under today. Uh, I think that, that at one point in time, the mission was to leadership that looked like us. Now our mission must be to have leadership that thinks like us. Uh, and, and in some of those spaces, I won't claim that, that all of those where you no longer have black leadership, that this is, you know, attributable to, to that dynamic. Uh, but in some of those spaces, though the leadership may have looked like uh, the people, it may not have represented the ideas of the people, uh, and people grew weary. I think people have grow weary of, of uh, the capacity for black leadership to, uh, to succeed. Uh, and so we have to demonstrate to them uh, principal leadership that is able to achieve their ends uh, and also demonstrate that, that you know, uh, the success of your leadership isn't, uh, you know, black leaders can fail like any other leaders, uh, that, that white leadership or leadership of another demographic isn't what you need in order to succeed. You need leadership, which is principle, no matter what it looks like. Uh, and so when you don't have uh, principled leadership, then then I think people feel uh, betrayed and, and they feel betrayed more uh, by individuals that look like them. And so we have to push back against that that dynamic and make certain that, that you know, we maintain the people's trust. Uh, and so that's why I think it's important to incorporate the people's ideas and, and their uh, their 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 work and, and, and allow them to. Uh, be a part of that process and not merely um, dictate to them what is success for them. Uh, I I readily uh, admit that that I don't have the capacity to uh, I don't have the capacity to solve Jackson's problems by myself. Uh, but I believe in a collective genius process where we can arrive at the best solutions to our problems together. The historical question is really interesting because. I definitely think a lack of principal leadership played a major role, but there was also this tragic confluence of of events where in the 70s, 80s, 90s, you had black politicians coming to power in cities at the very moment when white people and businesses, i.e. capital, were finishing this process of constructing a new uh, racist new model of, of metropolitan segregation. And so cities mm-hmm. became majority black and governed by black officials at the very same time that they lost their tax base. And so you end up with this, this situation of this first generation of, uh, of black mayors administering austerity and decline. How do you look back at that? Well, well, I would agree. I would agree that, that, you know, it's, it's been a a compilation of things uh, and, and that has been, you know, done by design. Uh, It has not been, uh, by coincidence, I don't think that we we arrived at at you know the uh, surgence of black leadership and and you know a new model of of where people would invest outside of those communities uh, simultaneously just just you know by happenstance that that was a part of a design uh, and Jackson you know reflects uh, that that uh, re- reflects that scenario you know, is all around the country. And so, you know, but, but I believe that when you talk about that, dis- that, that divestment and you talk about, uh, you know, the leadership at times, at times, and, and like I said, this is not to represent, uh, you know, every black leader uh, sure. in any place. You, you have bad black leaders like you have bad white leaders, right? 
you have bad black leaders like you have bad any, you know, in any demographic. Uh, and, and so I think that is, it is more painful uh, to to our people when you see that divestment, which makes it difficult from the start. It makes it difficult to build and, and to address the needs of the community when that, that tax base is left. Uh, and it does not help. It does not help when when, uh, you know, when people don't stand on, on the principles that are important to the community. And then, ironically and tragically, again, that that is used against black leaders so that people can point to Detroit and say Coleman Young did this when, in fact, what happened to Detroit was caused by forces of capitalism and racism, not Absolutely. Not principally by Coleman Young. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's an effort to confuse the issue. You know, uh, if, if people really took a true glance at places like Detroit, then, then, you know, you would find things like, you know, when Detroit was uh, going through bankruptcy, uh, that the state of Michigan actually owed the city of Detroit more money than it was in debt for. Uh, but they saw fit that Detroit had to had to suffer the consequences of their debt before the state had to uh, pay the city back. When you look at Jackson, Mississippi, uh, Jackson is the capital of the state of Mississippi. uh, And over half of the buildings downtown are state-owned facilities. Uh, In those buildings, uh, the city, of course, because they're state property, does not get property tax from the state. Uh, When you look at those buildings, the city provides water. Uh, to all state facilities, uh, yet the state does not pay the city of Jackson a water bill, right? Wow. Uh, if the state of Mississippi merely paid its water bill, uh, then the city would be able to address, uh, m- you know, many, if not most, of uh, the conditions which it suffers from. Uh, and so Jackson, you, you see literally a state which is the back of Jackson, like the, the bedroom communities surrounding the city. Uh, Jackson. Uh, by far is the, the, the most significant con- uh, contributor to uh, the revenue of the state, uh, yet uh, the support from the state is not commensurate with the support Jackson provides to the state of Mississippi. And so uh, Detroit, which is not the capital, but but certainly uh, the economic engine for the state of Michigan, uh, has historically suffered the same consequences of a state uh, that takes advantage, uh, you know, uh, even though people don't want to live in, in uh, some of those, those people who have left the city uh, turn their back on the city of Jackson in terms of where their tax dollars uh, go, they uh, profit from the city of Jackson each and every day. And, and Detroit, Michigan is, is similar in that context. That's a, a very clear and brazen example of the fact that that the, the the wealth of of wealthy people in wealthy communities is is directly implicated in the the poverty of of poor communities. It's not a matter of charity for poor people. It's about the fact that the that the class war is always always happening and that wealth is always being redistributed upwards. Absolutely, it's 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 not about you know asking somebody to or hand out. Uh, if you gave the, the city of Jackson and communities that look like the city of Jackson what they deserve. Uh, than they would be able to do for themselves. Uh, and so it, it's about, you know, understanding that. And, and, and that's often not spoke of, you know, as if uh, staying in, in Jackson, uh, 
you know, or, or, you know, returning resources to Jackson is doing some favor by Jackson. Uh, when Jackson honestly supports this entire state, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's not, you know, un, you know, dissimilar in, in other spaces where black populations help build the wealth, where, where some of the, uh, the, the greatest contributors to the economy across the country. Hello, this is Daniel Denver, host of the show that you are listening to. The Dig has launched its spring fundraising drive, and we're aiming to hit at least 1,000 supporters at patreon.com slash the dig by the end of June. We don't paywall our shows, i.e. we give them to you for free. And so we depend on your support to keep this thing running smoothly. That said, we do have cool stuff to send those of you who do donate. Contribute $10 or more a month, and I will mail you a copy of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. $20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of books by Dig Guests and other great left-wing authors put out by Verso and other publishers. And that's not it. I just started a weekly newsletter for everyone donating at least $5, which, amongst other things, offers ideas for future reading— from me and from my guests. Please take a quick moment and contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. We can't do this without you, so please and thank you. And back to the show. I want to ask you more about, about relations between Jackson and the state which is the state of Mississippi, so it's obviously controlled by conservative Republicans. And those relations have unsurprisingly been tense over the years. You mentioned earlier a fight over local school control. There has also, I believe, been fights over downtown redevelopment and control over the airport. Can you tell me about those Mm -hmm. conflicts and, and how they've played out? Before I took office, the state legislature passed a bill for a capital complex improvement district, uh, which was, you know, this, you know, artificial uh, area which they drew lines around, incorporated, uh, you know, what the legislature saw a value in in Jackson or or the areas that that produced the most wealth. Uh, for instance, somehow the capital complex district uh, incorporates the University of Mississippi Medical Center, which is here in Jackson, uh, but but not near the downtown area in any real sense. Uh, and, and, you know, institutions that they see value in and decided that they would provide funding for the infrastructure in that area, uh, but that they would create a commission that controlled that district, uh, that the commission uh, would decide on increased fire and police protection not to go in the coffers of the city of Jackson uh, per se, necessarily, uh, but that they would be able to use the money which they were extracting. And they weren't giving money to the city of Jackson. Uh, They were uh, giving a greater portion of Jackson's own tax uh, uh, collection um, to the city. Uh, So reapportioning a a portion of the taxes collected in Jackson back to Jackson uh, for that. Uh, that district, and they would have uh, great control. And so obviously, when you look at it, things like gentrification, 
uh, an alarm uh, for that effort. Uh, in terms of the, uh, the Jackson Airport, the city of Jackson invested in an airport uh, outside of Hines County, which uh, the, 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 the city, the majority of the city resides. Jackson is, is affixed in Hines County, uh, but Jackson created its own airport, international airport in Rankin County, which is adjacent to uh, Hines County. And at the time that Jackson made that decision, uh, there was no development in Rankin County. It was a ghost town, essentially. Uh, it was it was a barren land. And Jackson, strategically at that time, this was many, many years ago, chose to put the airport in that space uh, and also uh, purchased the land and incorporated much of the land. So, so the airport, though it is affixed in a different county, the airport sits in the city of Jackson because it's incorporated as as such. Uh, and so the state of Mississippi uh, passed legislation uh, a few years ago to strip that and make it a regional airport and to control the airport and, and uh, have a board uh, where Jackson only has, you know, a few votes of the direction in which it goes in. And so uh, we're fighting that effort. There's a lawsuit right now. Uh, against that effort to to uh, take the airport from the city. In federal court? In federal court, yes. And what's the status of the downtown redevelopment district? The district uh, has has been created. The commission has, has not yet uh, met, and so no decisions have been made. Uh, and, and the money has uh, not in any great sense, really been allocated towards any of the projects in Jackson. I want to ask you about the issue of of ideology and popular education. I think there are a lot of misconceptions across the board on about black politics. I think some leftists sometimes make the mistake of presuming that all black people are just sort of revolutionaries in waiting, just mm-hmm. as some liberals pointing to Bernie Sanders' struggles during the primary make the argument that black people are inherently hostile to radicalism when, in reality, people's of all sources, ideologies are complicated. Mm-hmm. How We're, how do those look? Black people are, do, are not monolithic. <laughs> so how do those uh, uh, local black people in Jackson who don't come from a radical background make sense of, of what you and the movement are doing and saying and what kinds of questions or, or criticisms do you get and how do you respond? Well, you know, as I suggested, you know, during a campaign, uh, the title of being radical was, was meant as a critique. And so I embraced it. Uh, and, and as I speak to uh, what it means to be radical, you know, I, I literally see uh, on, on occasion, you know, uh, aha moments where people understand uh, that, that, being a radical isn't necessarily a negative thing. Uh, but, you know, my position is, is our work is our defense. Uh, what we prove and what we produce and, and how we demonstrate our sincerity is the defense against, you know, the notion uh, that, that, you know, fighting for yourself is negative. And so, uh, you know, as I share with people, uh, Jackson has not fallen in the condition that it is in because somebody has been too radical, because somebody has fought too hard for Jackson. Uh, in fact, I would argue the exact opposite. Jackson has fallen in the conditions that it, 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 it uh, now sees because someone has not fought, fought hard enough. And so uh, it's about how you, you clarify the point 
uh, and demonstrate in your action and bring these ideas into fruition that ultimately uh, enable us to have larger discussions. As I said, when I talked about the pothole, the pothole analogy, uh, that, that through, through, you know, addressing and meeting people where they are, meeting uh, their concerns, you're able to have larger discussions and, and the use of operational unity, uh, understanding that, that, you know, we can come to a space uh, where we identify where we're unified uh, and, and have unity debate unity, identify where we're uni unified, uh, debate where we may have differences with the objective of reaching greater unity at the end of the day than we arrive with. And, and that operational unity is focusing more on our common ends and objectives than our differences. How do you see the, the role of the movement in Jackson, what role it's playing in the broader American left mm -hmm. with, mm -hmm. with, uh, working class movements and movements that are that are multiracial and not necessarily rooted in a black nationalist background? I would say that, that what happens in Jackson uh, and, and what we're able to produce is, is important to uh, people who are uh, who, who are suffering across the, the globe, uh, you know, oppression uh, and, and the things that we've seen in Jackson historically are not only oppressive to, to black people and the historic struggles that people have seen across the country are historic, are, are oppressive to all people, white, poor white people to, to be included. Um, and so we feel that, you know, if we're able to achieve a new direction and create a new narrative, take control of our narrative, then it speaks to the capacity and ability of people everywhere. Mississippi, you know, when I talk about uh, when people are asking me, well, how do you feel in Jackson, Mississippi, after the election of Donald Trump? What I share with them is, you know, the Wednesday after Donald Trump was elected president, I woke up in Mississippi. That means no matter whether the country has experienced great booms or busts, Mississippi has always been at the bottom. And so it is imperative and it is, it is apparent to me uh, that, that what will change our condition is what we do for ourselves. And if we can demonstrate an ability to, to, uh, to rise uh, for ourselves, then it's a model to be, to be carried out uh, throughout the country and throughout the globe. Uh, we need to focus on uh, what are those common struggles that we see. Uh, we don't need to be fighting when we see an, an assault on, on brown people in our country. We need to be uh, working with them. We don't need to buy into those notions that are sold to us where we're told, well, you know, someone's taking your job. If it was your job, no one could take it, right? The problem is, is that they're being exploited and you're being exploited at the same time. Uh, and and, and uh, your issue isn't with them. Your issue is with the, the employer that has no value in you or them, that is looking for the next person to exploit, looking for the next person to take advantage of and pay less than living wages to. Uh, and so we, we need to be supportive of one another. We need to learn from one another. We need to contribute to one another uh, so that we can all win together. Last question. You recently met with Bernie Sanders. What did you talk about? Uh, we had a, a town hall meeting. Uh, he he uh, requested the opportunity uh, to, to come to Jackson to speak. And, and you know, uh, we engaged in a dialogue. It was on economic uh, justice, and, and we talked about the historic context of economics today, and, and, and uh, it was 
on the heels of, uh, or actually the day of the anniversary of Martin's assassination. And so I thought it was important to really put in context where Martin was the day he died. Uh, Martin, you know, I, I spoke about, you know, uh, the conversation that Martin had with Harry Belafonte not long before he died, where he told Harry, he said, you know, listen, Harry, we're going to win this integration struggle. I'm beginning to fear that we may be integrating into a burning house. And he said, I see a system which is abusing labor and abusing working people. And he said, if we can't get to a place uh, where we're talking about how we share goods, resources, and power, then it is senseless to march on just social issues, right? We know that, that uh, race is a factor. We know that race is, is you know, racism is, is alive and active in this country. In fact, the United States suffers from a disease called racism, right? But we need to see how racism is utilized as a tool for exploitation of everyone, not just black people, not just brown people, uh, but a tool to exploit the masses of the country and take advantage. And so uh, Martin began to see that and he began to talk about it. And, and, and you know, if we do justice to the memory of Martin, we would realize that many of those allies of his uh, began to turn their backs on him when he started to talk about economics, because he saw the trouble that economics was playing in, in the larger scheme of things. And so we and when he started to, to talk about Vietnam, when he started to talk about Vietnam. And so we, we have to be able to be brave enough not only to address issues of racism, right, but to address issues that impact us all uh, and really, uh, you know, lead to the symptom of racism. Mayor Shokwe Antar Lumumba, thank you so much. Thank you. I, I've really enjoyed our discussion, and, and uh, I look forward to talking with you again sometime soon. Shokwe Antar Lumumba is the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after getting sort of into Murray Bookchin, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, mostly twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, and the music is all by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's an iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also helps put us in touch with new listeners is you telling your friends, family, or whoever about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And last but not least, please find us at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash the dig and make a contribution to ensure the long-term viability of this show. 